Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Sodorisib plus panutamab in refractory colorectal cancer with mutated CRAS G12C. Background. CRAS G12C is a mutation that occurs in approximately 3-4% of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer. Monotherapy with CRAS G12C inhibitors has yielded only modest efficacy. Combining the CRAS G12C inhibitor sodorisib with panutamab, an epidermal growth factor receptor, EGFR, inhibitor, may be an effective strategy. Methods In this phase 3, multi-center, open-label, randomized trial, we assign patients with chemorefractory metastatic colorectal cancer with mutated CRAS G12C who had not received previous treatment with a CRAS G12C inhibitor to receive sodorisib at a dose of 960 mg once daily plus panutamab, 53 patients, sodorisib at a dose of 240 mg once daily plus panutamab, 53 patients, or the investigator's choice of trifluoridine tapiracil or regorafenib, standard care, 54 patients. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival as assessed by blinded independent central review according to the response evaluation criteria in solid tumors, version 1.1. Key secondary endpoints were overall survival and objective response. Results. After a median follow-up of 7.8 months, range 0.1 to 13.9, the median progression-free survival was 5.6 months, 95% confidence interval, C, 4.2 to 6.3, and 3.9 months, 95% C, 3.7 to 5.8, in the 960 mg sodorisib panutamab and 240 mg sodorisib panutamab groups, respectively, as compared with 2.2 months, 95% C, 1.9 to 3.9, in the standard care group. The hazard ratio for disease progression or death in the 960 mg sodorisib panutamab group as compared with the standard care group was 0.49, 95% C, 0.30-0.80, P equals 0.006, and the hazard ratio in the 240 mg sodorisib panutamab group was 0.58, 95% C, 0.36-0.93, P equals 0.03. Overall survival data are maturing. The objective response was 26.4%, 95% C, 15.3 to 40.3, 5.7%, 95% 1.2 to 15.7, and 0%, 95% C, 0.0 to 6.6, in the 960 mg sodorisib panutamab, 240 mg sodorisib panutamab, and standard care groups, respectively. 
Treatment-related adverse events of grade 3 or higher occurred in 35.8%, 30.2%, and 43.1% of patients, respectively. Skin-related toxic effects and hypomagnesemia were the most common adverse events observed with sodorisipinutumab. Conclusions In this phase 3 trial of a CRAS G12C inhibitor plus an EGFR inhibitor in patients with chemorefractory metastatic colorectal cancer, both doses of sodorisib in combination with panutumab resulted in longer progression-free survival than standard treatment. Toxic effects were as expected for either agent alone and resulted in few discontinuations of treatment. Baricitinib and beta cell function in patients with new onset type 1 diabetes. Background Janus kinase JAK, inhibitors, including baricitinib, block cytokine signaling and are effective disease-modifying treatments for several autoimmune diseases. Whether baricitinib preserves beta cell function in type 1 diabetes is unclear. Methods In this phase 2, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, we assign patients with type 1 diabetes diagnosed during the previous 100 days to receive baricitinib, 4 mg once per day, or match placebo orally for 48 weeks. The primary outcome was the mean C-peptide level, determined from the area under the concentration time curve, during a 2-hour mixed meal tolerance test at week 48. Secondary outcomes included the change from baseline in the glycated hemoglobin level, the daily insulin dose, and measures of glycemic control assessed with the use of continuous glucose monitoring. Results A total of 91 patients received baricitinib, 60 patients, or placebo, 31 patients. The median of the mixed meal stimulated mean C-peptide level at week 48 was 0.65 mol per liter per minute, interquartile range, 0.31 to 0.82 in the baricitinib group and 0.43 mol per liter per minute, interquartile range, 0.13 to 0.63 in the placebo group, P equals 0.001. The mean daily insulin dose at 48 weeks was 0.41 u per kilogram of body weight per day. 95% confidence interval, C, 0.35 to 0.48 in the baricitinib group and 0.52 u per kilogram per day, 95% C, 0.44 to 0.60 in the placebo group. The levels of glycated hemoglobin were similar in the two trial groups. However, mean coefficient of variation of the glucose level at 48 weeks, as measured by continuous glucose monitoring, was 29.6%. 95% C, 27.8 to 31.3, in the baricitinib group and 33.8%, 95% C, 31.5 to 36.2, in the placebo group. The frequency and severity of adverse events were similar in the two trial groups, and no serious adverse events were attributed to baricitinib or placebo. Conclusions In patients with type 1 diabetes of recent onset, Daily treatment with baricitinib over 48 weeks appeared to preserve beta cell function as estimated by the mixed meal stimulated mean C peptide level. Teplitzumab and beta cell function in newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes. Background Teplitzumab a humanized monoclonal antibody to CD3 on T-cells, 
is approved by the Food and Drug Administration to delay the onset of clinical type 1 diabetes, stage 3, in patients 8 years of age or older with preclinical, stage 2, disease. Whether treatment with intravenous teplitzumab in patients with newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes can prevent disease progression is unknown. Methods In this phase 3, randomized, placebo-controlled trial, we assessed beta cell preservation, clinical endpoints, and safety in children and adolescents who were assigned to receive teplitzumab or placebo for two 12-day courses. The primary endpoint was the change from baseline in beta cell function, as measured by stimulated C-peptide levels at week 78. The key secondary endpoints were the insulin doses that were required to meet glycemic goals, glycated hemoglobin levels, time in the target glucose range, and clinically important hypoglycemic events. Results Patients treated with teplitzumab, 217 patients, had significantly higher stimulated C-peptide levels than patients receiving placebo, 111 patients, at week 78, least squares mean difference, 0.13 ml per milliliter, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.09 to 0.17, P less than 0.001, and 94.9%, 95% C, 89.5 to 97.6, of patients treated with teplitzumab maintained a clinically meaningful peak C-peptide level of 0.2 ml per milliliter or greater, as compared with 79.2%, 95% C, 67.7 to 87.4, of those receiving placebo. The groups did not differ significantly with regard to the key secondary endpoints. Adverse events occurred primarily in association with administration of teplitzumab or placebo and included headache, gastrointestinal symptoms, rash, lymphopenia, and mild cytokine release syndrome. Conclusions Two 12-day courses of teplitzumab in children and adolescents with newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes showed benefit with respect to the primary endpoint of preservation of beta cell function, but no significant differences between the groups were observed with respect to the secondary endpoints. Mirvadeximab sorovtan sign in FR-alpha-positive, platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. Background Mirvadeximab sorovtan sign jinx, MIRV, a first-in-class antibody drug conjugate targeting folate receptor alpha, FR-alpha, is approved for the treatment of platinum-resistant ovarian cancer in the United States. Methods We conducted a phase 3, global, confirmatory, open-label, randomized, Controlled trial to compare the efficacy and safety of MERV with the investigator's choice of chemotherapy in the treatment of platinum-resistant, high-grade serous ovarian cancer. Participants who had previously received 1-3 to three lines of therapy and had high FR-alpha tumor expression, greater than or equal to 75% of cells with greater than or equal to 2-plus staining intensity, were randomly assigned in a 1-to-1 ratio to receive MERV. 6 mg per kilogram of adjusted ideal body weight every 3 weeks, or chemotherapy, paclitaxel, pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, or topotecan. The primary endpoint was investigator-assessed progression-free survival. Key secondary analytic endpoints included objective response, overall survival, and participant-reported outcomes. Results A total of 453 participants underwent randomization, 227 were assigned to the MERV group and 226 to the chemotherapy group. 
The median progression-free survival was 5.62 months, 95% confidence interval, C, 4.34 to 5.95, with Mervin 3.98 months, 95% C, 2.86 to 4.47, with chemotherapy, P less than 0.001. An objective response occurred in 42.3% of the participants in the MERV group and in 15.9% of those in the chemotherapy group, odds ratio, 3.81, 95% C, 2.44 to 5.94, P less than 0.001. Overall survival was significantly longer with MERV than with chemotherapy, median, 16.46 months versus 12.75 months, hazard ratio for death, 0.67, 95% C, 0.50 to 0.89, P equals 0.005. During the treatment period, Fewer adverse events of grade 3 or higher occurred with MERV than with chemotherapy, 41.7% versus 54.1%, as did serious adverse events of any grade, 23.9% versus 32.9%, and events leading to discontinuation, 9.2% versus 15.9%. Conclusions Among participants with platinum-resistant, FR-alpha-positive ovarian cancer, Treatment with MERV showed a significant benefit over chemotherapy with respect to progression-free and overall survival and objective response. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Sintlimab plus chemotherapy for unresectable gastric or gastroesophageal junction cancer the Orient 16 randomized clinical trial. Importance Gastric and gastroesophageal junction cancers are diagnosed in more than 1 million people worldwide annually, and few effective treatments are available. Sintlimab, a recombinant human Ig4 monoclonal antibody that binds to programmed cell death 1, PD-1, in combination with chemotherapy, has demonstrated promising efficacy. Objective to compare overall survival of patients with unresectable locally advanced or metastatic gastric or gastroesophageal junction cancers who were treated with sintlimab with chemotherapy versus placebo with chemotherapy. Also compared were a subset of patients with a PD ligand 1, PDL1, combined positive score, CPS, of 5 or more, range, 1 to 100. Design, setting, and participants randomized, double blind, placebo controlled, Phase 3 clinical trial conducted at 62 hospitals in China that enrolled 650 patients with unresectable locally advanced or metastatic gastric or gastroesophageal junction adenocarcinoma between January 3, 2019, and August 5, 2020. Final follow-up occurred on June 20, 2021. Interventions patients were randomized one-to-one to either Sintlimab, N equals 327, or placebo, N equals 323, combined with capacitabine and aphsaliplatin, the Zelox regimen, every three weeks for a maximum of six cycles. Maintenance therapy with Sintlimab or placebo plus capacitabine continued for up to two years. Main outcomes and measures the primary endpoint was overall survival time from randomization. Results of the 650 patients, mean age, 59 years, 483, 74.3%, men, 327 were randomized to Sintlimab plus chemotherapy and 323 to placebo plus chemotherapy. Among the randomized patients, 397, 61.1%, 
had tumors with a PDL1 CPS of 5 or more, 563, 86.6%, discontinued study treatment in 388, 59.7%, died, one patient, less than 0.1%, was lost to follow-up. Among all randomized patients, Sintlimab improved overall survival compared with placebo, median, 15.2 versus 12.3 months, stratified hazard ratio, HR, 0.77, 95% C, 0.63 to 0.94, P equals 0.009. Among patients with a CPS of 5 or more, Sintlimab improved overall survival compared with placebo, median, 18.4 versus 12.9 months, HR, 0.66, 95% C, 0.50 to 0.86, P equals 0.002. The most common grade 3 or higher treatment-related adverse events were decreased platelet count, Sintlimab, 24.7% versus placebo, 21.3%, decreased neutrophil count, Sintlimab, 20.1% versus placebo, 18.8%, and anemia, Sintlimab, 12.5% versus placebo, 8.8%. Conclusions and relevance among patients with unresectable locally advanced or metastatic gastric and gastroesophageal junction adenocarcinoma treated with first-line chemotherapy, Sintlimab significantly improved overall survival for all patients and for patients with a CPS of 5 or more compared with placebo. Pregnancy after breast cancer in young BRCA carriers. An international hospital-based cohort study. Importance young women with breast cancer who have germline pathogenic variants in BRCA1 or BRCA2 face unique challenges regarding fertility. Previous studies demonstrating the feasibility and safety of pregnancy in breast cancer survivors included limited data regarding BRCA carriers. Objective to investigate cumulative incidence of pregnancy and disease-free survival in young women who are BRCA carriers. Design, setting, and participants international, multi-center, hospital-based, retrospective cohort study conducted at 78 participating centers worldwide. The study included female participants diagnosed with invasive breast cancer age 40 years or younger between January 2000 and December 2020 carrying germline pathogenic variants in BRCA1 and or BRCA2. Last delivery was October 7, 2022. Last follow-up was February 20, 2023. Exposure Pregnancy After Breast Cancer Main outcomes and measures primary endpoints were cumulative incidence of pregnancy after breast cancer and disease-free survival. Secondary endpoints were breast cancer-specific survival, overall survival, pregnancy, and fetal and obstetric outcomes. Results of 4,732 BRCA carriers included, 659 had at least one pregnancy after breast cancer and 4,073 did not. Median age at diagnosis in the overall cohort was 35 years, IQR, 31 to 38 years. Cumulative incidence of pregnancy at 10 years was 22%, 95% C, 21% to 24%, with a median time from breast cancer diagnosis to conception of 3.5 years, IQR, 2.2 to 5.3 years. Among the 659 patients who had a pregnancy, 45, 6.9% and 63, 9.7%, had an induced abortion or a miscarriage, respectively. Of the 517 patients, 
79.7%, with a completed pregnancy, 406, 91.0%, delivered at term, greater than or equal to 37 weeks, and 54, 10.4%, had twins. Among the 470 infants born with known information on pregnancy complications, 4, 0.9%, had documented congenital anomalies. Median follow-up was 7.8 years, IQR, 4.5 to 12.6 years. No significant difference in disease-free survival was observed between patients with or without a pregnancy after breast cancer, adjusted hazard ratio, 0.99, 95% C, 0.81 to 1.20. Patients who had a pregnancy had significantly better breast cancer-specific survival and overall survival. Conclusions and relevance in this global study, 1 in 5 young BRCA carriers conceived within 10 years after breast cancer diagnosis. Pregnancy following breast cancer in BRCA carriers was not associated with decreased disease-free survival. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Second-Line Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-Cell Therapy in Diffuse Large B-Cell Lymphoma Cost-Effectiveness Analysis Background First-line treatment of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, DLBCL, achieves durable remission in approximately 60% of patients. In relapsed or refractory disease, only about 20% achieve durable remission with salvage chemoimmunotherapy and consolidative autologous stem cell transplantation, ASCT. The Zuma 7, Axicaptogene Silalucel, AxiCell, and Transform, Lisocaptagene Marilusel, Lisocell, trials demonstrated superior event-free survival, and, in Zuma 7, overall survival, in primary refractory or early relapsed, high-risk, DLBCL with chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, CAR-T, compared with salvage chemoimmunotherapy and consolidative ASCT. However, list prices for CAR-T exceed $400,000 per infusion. Objective to determine the cost-effectiveness of second-line CAR-T versus salvage chemoimmunotherapy and consolidative ASCT. Design. State Transition Microsimulation Model. Data Sources. Zuma 7, Transform, Other Trials, and Observational Data. Target Population. High-Risk Patients with DLBCL. Time Horizon. Lifetime. Perspective. Healthcare Sector. Intervention. AxiCell or LisoCell versus ASCT. Outcome measures. Incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, ICER, and incremental net monetary benefit in, in 2022 U.S. dollars per quality adjusted life year, QALY, for a willingness to pay, WTP, threshold of $200,000 per Kali. Results of base case analysis. The increase in median overall survival was 4 months for AxiCell and 1 month for LisoCell. For AxiCell, the ECHR was $684,225 per Kali and the IN was minus $107,642. For LisoCell, the ECHR was $1,171,909 per Kali and the IN was minus $102,477. Results of Sensitivity Analysis to be cost-effective with a WTP of $200,000, the cost of CAR-T would have to be reduced to $321,123 for AxiCell and $313,730 for LisoCell. 
Implementation in high-risk patients would increase U.S. health care spending by approximately $6.8 billion over a five-year period. Limitation Differences in pre-infusion bridging therapies precluded cross-trial comparisons. Conclusion Neither second-line AxiCell nor LisoCell was cost-effective at a WTP of $200,000 per collie. Clinical outcomes improved incrementally, but costs of CAR-T must be lowered substantially to enable cost-effectiveness. Next article from Lancet. Pembrolizumab plus trastuzumab and chemotherapy for her two positive gastric or gastroesophageal junction adenocarcinoma, interim analysis from the Phase 3 Keynote 811 randomized placebo-controlled trial. Background Evidence for the efficacy of combined PD-1 in HER2 blockade with chemotherapy on progression-free and overall survival in HER2 positive gastroesophageal cancer is scarce. The first interim analysis of the randomized, Phase 3 Keynote 811 study showed a superior objective response with pembrolizumab compared with placebo when added to trastuzumab plus fluoropyrimidine and platinum-based chemotherapy. Here, we report results from protocol-specified subsequent interim analyses of Keynote 811. Methods The randomized, Phase 3 Keynote 811 trial involved 168 medical centers in 20 countries worldwide. Findings 698 patients were assigned to pembrolizumab, N equals 350, or placebo, N equals 348. 564, 81%, were male and 134, 19%, were female. At the third interim analysis, 286, 82%, of 350 patients in the pembrolizumab group and 304, 88%, of 346 in the placebo group who received treatment had discontinued treatment, mostly due to disease progression. At the second interim analysis, median follow-up 28 middle.3 months, IQR 19 middle.4 to 34 middle.3, in the pembrolizumab group and 28 middle.5 months, 20 middle.1 to 34 middle.3, in the placebo group. Median progression-free survival was 10 middle.0 months, 95% C8 middle.6 to 11 middle.7, in the pembrolizumab group versus 8 middle.1 months, 7 middle.0 to 8 middle.5, in the placebo group, hazard ratio, HR, 0 middle.72, 95% C0 middle.60 to 0 middle.87, P equals 0 middle.0002. Median overall survival was 20 middle.0 months, 17 middle.8 to 23 middle.2 versus 16 middle.9 months, 15 middle.0 to 19 middle.8, HR0 middle.87, 0 middle.72 to 1 middle.06, P equals 0 middle.084. Grade 3 or worse treatment-related adverse events occurred in 204, 58%, of 350 patients in the pembrolizumab group versus 176, 51%, of 346 patients in the placebo group. Treatment-related adverse events that led to death occurred in 4, 1%, patients in the pembrolizumab group and 3, 1%, in the placebo group. The most common treatment-related adverse events of any grade were diarrhea, 165, 47%, in the pembrolizumab group versus 145, 42%, in the placebo group, nausea, 
44%, versus 152, 44%, and anemia, 109, 31%, versus 113, 33%. Interpretation Compared with placebo, pembrolizumab significantly improved progression-free survival when combined with first-line trastuzumab and chemotherapy for metastatic HER2-positive gastroesophageal cancer, specifically in patients with tumors with a PD-L1 combined positive score of 1 or more. Overall survival follow-up is ongoing and will be reported at the final analysis. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Effect of metformin versus placebo on new primary cancers in Canadian Cancer Trials Group MA.32, a secondary analysis of a phase 3 randomized double-blind trial in early breast cancer. Clinical trials frequently include multiple endpoints that mature at different times. The initial report, typically based on the primary endpoint, may be published when key planned co-primary or secondary analyses are not yet available. Clinical trial updates provide an opportunity to disseminate additional results from studies, published in JCO or elsewhere, for which the primary endpoint has already been reported. Metformin has been associated with lower cancer risk in epidemiologic and preclinical research. In the MA.32 randomized adjuvant breast cancer trial, metformin, B placebo, did not affect invasive disease-free or overall survival. Here, we report metformin effects on the risk of new cancer. Between 2010 and 2013, 3,649 patients with breast cancer younger than 75 years without diabetes with high-risk T13, N03M0 breast cancer, any estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, were randomly assigned to metformin 850 mg orally twice a day or placebo twice a day for 5 years. New primary invasive cancers, outside the ipsilateral breast, Developing as a first event were identified. Time to events was described by the competing risks method, two-sided likelihood ratio tests adjusting for age, BMI, smoking, and alcohol intake were used to compare metformin versus placebo arms. A total of 184 patients developed new invasive cancers, 102 metformin and 82 placebo, hazard ratio, HR, 1.25, 95% C, 0.94 to 1.68. P equals 0.13. These included 48 contralateral invasive breast cancers, 27 metformin B21 placebo, HR, 1.29, 95% C, 0.72 to 2.27, P equals 0.40, and 136 new non-breast primary cancers, 75 metformin B61 placebo, HR, 1.24, 95% C, 0.88 to 1.74, P equals 0.21. Metformin did not reduce the risk of new cancer development in these non-diabetic patients with breast cancer. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. Bifidobacterium pseudolongum generated acetate suppresses non-alcoholic fatty liver disease associated hepatocellular carcinoma. Background and aims. Recent studies have highlighted the role of the gut microbiota and their metabolites in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease-associated hepatocellular carcinoma, NAFLDHCC. 
We aim to identify specific beneficial bacterial species that could be used prophylactically to prevent NAFLD HCC. Methods The role of Bifidobacterium pseudolongum was assessed in two mouse models of NAFLD HCC, diethyl nitrosamine plus a high-fat-slash-high-cholesterol diet or plus a choline-deficient-slash-high-fat diet. Germ-free mice were used for the metabolic study of B. pseudolongum. Stool, portal vein and liver tissues were collected from mice for non-targeted and targeted metabolomic profiles. Two human NAFLD HCC cell lines, HKCI2 and HKCI10, were co-cultured with B. pseudolongum-conditioned media, BPCM, or candidate metabolites. Results B. pseudolongum was a top-depleted bacterium in mice with NAFLD HCC. Oral gavage of B. pseudolongum significantly suppressed NAFLD HCC formation in two mouse models, P less than 0.01. Incubation of NAFLD HCC cells with BPCM significantly suppressed cell proliferation, inhibited the G1-S phase transition and induced apoptosis. Acetate was identified as the critical metabolite generated from B. pseudolongum and BPCM, an observation that was confirmed in germ-free mice. Acetate inhibited cell proliferation and induced cell apoptosis in NAFLD HCC cell lines and suppressed NAFLD HCC tumor formation in vivo. B. pseudolongum restored healthy gut microbiome composition and improved gut barrier function. Mechanistically, B. pseudolongum generated acetate reached the liver via the portal vein and bound to GPR43, G coupled protein receptor 43, on hepatocytes. GPR43 activation suppressed the IL 6. JAK1-STAT3 signaling pathway, thereby preventing NAFLD HCC progression. Conclusions B. pseudolongum protected against NAFLD HCC by secreting the anti-tumor metabolite acetate, which reached the liver via the portal vein. B. pseudolongum holds potential as a probiotic for the prevention of NAFLD HCC. Impact and Implications Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease-associated hepatocellular carcinoma, NAFLD HCC, is an increasing healthcare burden worldwide. There is an urgent need to develop effective agents to prevent NAFLD HCC progression. Herein, we show that the probiotic Bifidobacterium pseudolongum significantly suppress NAFLD HCC progression by secreting acetate, which bound to hepatic GPR43, G-coupled protein receptor 43, via the gut-liver axis, and suppress the oncogenic IL-6, JAK1-STAT3 signaling pathway. Bifidobacterium pseudolongum holds potential as a novel probiotic for NAFLD HCC prevention. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology Long-term risks of recurrence after hospital discharge for acute lower gastrointestinal bleeding, a large nationwide cohort study. Background and aims Currently, large, nationwide, long-term follow-up data on acute lower gastrointestinal bleeding, LGIP, are scarce. We investigated long-term risks of recurrence after hospital discharge for LGIP using a large multi-center dataset. Methods We retrospectively analyzed 5,048 patients who were urgently hospitalized for LGIP at 49 hospitals across Japan, Code Blue J study. Risk factors for the long-term recurrence of LGIB were analyzed by using competing risk analysis, treating death without rebleeding as a competing risk. Results Rebleeding occurred in 1304 patients, 25.8%, 
during a mean follow-up period of 31 months. The cumulative incidences of re-bleeding at 1 in 5 years were 15.1% and 25.1%, respectively. The mortality risk was significantly higher in patients with out-of-hospital re-bleeding episodes than in those without, hazard ratio, 1.42. Of the 30 factors, multivariate analysis showed that shock index greater than or equal to 1, subdistribution hazard ratio, SHR, 1.25, blood transfusion, SHR, 1.26, in-hospital re-bleeding, SHR, 1.26, colonic diverticular bleeding, SHR, 2.38, and thenopyridine use, SHR, 1.24, were significantly associated with increased re-bleeding risk. Multivariate analysis of colonic diverticular bleeding patients showed that blood transfusion, SHR, 1.20, in-hospital re-bleeding, SHR, 1.30, and thenopyridine use, SHR, 1.32, were significantly associated with increased re-bleeding risk, whereas endoscopic hemostasis, SHR, 0.83, significantly decreased the risk. Conclusions These large, nationwide follow-up data highlighted the importance of endoscopic diagnosis and treatment during hospitalization and the assessment of the need for ongoing thenopyridine used to reduce the risk of -of out-of-hospital rebleeding. This information also aids in the identification of patients at high risk of rebleeding. Next article from Blood. Clinical outcomes in patients with high-dose methotrexate toxicity treated with versus without glucarpidase. Background. High-dose methotrexate, HDMTX, is a cornerstone of treatment for lymphoma and leukemia involving the central nervous system, but can cause significant toxicity, which manifests predominantly as acute kidney injury, AKI, as well as bone marrow suppression and hepatotoxicity. Glucarpidase is a recombinant bacterial enzyme that cleaves 99% of circulating MTX to inactive metabolites within 15 minutes of its administration. It is approved for use in the setting of supertherapeutic MTX levels to mitigate renal and extrarenal toxicity. Results Among the 684 patients with HDMTX Aki, 207, 30.3%, were treated with glucarpidase and 477, 69.7% were not. All patients treated with glucarpidase received it within the first 96 hours following initiation of HDMTX. The median time from HDMTX initiation to glucarpidase receipt was 54 hours, IQR, 44-66, with 65% of the patients receiving it within 60 hours, and 85% within 72 hours. Patients treated versus not treated with glucarpidase were similar with respect to age, sex, race, MTX dose and infusion duration, and most baseline labs, including SER, but had high higher plasma MTX levels at 24 and 36 hours and more severe Aki table. Glucarpidase receipt was associated with a 2.43-fold higher adjusted odds of renal recovery, 95% C, 1.38 to 4.27, compared to no glucarpidase receipt, figure. The magnitude of association was considerably higher when the analysis was restricted to those treated with glucarpidase in the first 60 hours, odds ratio 4.94, 95% C, 2.42 to 10.06, and to those with Aki stage 3, odds ratio 7.08, 95% C, 
2.27-22.10 figure. Glucarpidase receipt was also associated with a higher likelihood of recovery from neutropenia and normalization of alanine aminotransferase, ALT, by day 7, figure. There was no significant association between glucarpidase receipt and mucositis on day 7, figure. Conclusions In the largest study to date of HDMTX Aki and the only one, to our knowledge, to include control patients, we found that patients who received glucarpidase had considerably higher odds of renal recovery, as well as recovery from neutropenia and normalization of liver enzymes, compared to those who did not receive glucarpidase. The magnitude of association with renal recovery was particularly evident in those treated with glucarpidase in the first 60 hours, and in those with Aki stage 3. Though this is an observational study with the potential for residual confounding, our data support use of glucarpidase in patients with HDMTX Aki, particularly in the first 60 hours following initiation of MTX. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Diagnostic accuracy of hospital antibiograms in predicting the risk of antimicrobial resistance in Enterobacteriaceae isolates, a nationwide multicenter evaluation at the Veterans Health Administration. Background Many clinical guidelines recommend that clinicians use antibiograms to inform empiric antimicrobial therapy. However, hospital antibiograms are typically generated by crude aggregation of microbiologic data, and little is known about an antibiogram's reliability in predicting antimicrobial resistance, AMR, risk at the patient level. We aim to assess the diagnostic accuracy of antibiograms as a tool for selecting empiric therapy for Escherichia coli and Klebsiella SPP. For individual patients. Methods. We retrospectively generated hospital antibiograms for the Nationwide Veterans Health Administration, VHA, facilities from 2000 to 2019 using all clinical culture specimens positive for E. coli and Klebsiella SPP, then assessed the diagnostic accuracy of an antibiogram to predict resistance for isolates in the following calendar year using logistic regression models and predefined five-step interpretation thresholds. Results Among 127 VHA facilities, 1484038 isolates from 704779 patients for E. coli and 671035 isolates from 345004 patients for Klebsiella SPP were available for analysis. For E. coli and Klebsiella SPP, the discrimination abilities of hospital-level antibiograms in predicting individual patient AMR were mostly poor with the areas under the receiver operating curve at 0.686 and 0.715 for ceftriaxone, 0.637 and 0.675 for fluoroquinolones, and 0.576 and 0.624 for trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, respectively. The sensitivity and specificity of the antibiogram varied widely by antimicrobial groups and interpretation thresholds with substantial trade-offs. Conclusions Conventional hospital antibiograms for E. coli and Klebsiella SPP have limited performance in predicting AMR for individual patients, and their utility in guiding empiric therapy may be low. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases 
Enhancing Community Participation in Dengue Control Through Digital Crowdsourcing, An Analysis of a World Mosquito Program Digital Open Call in Sri Lanka Background Two crowdsourcing open calls were created to enhance community engagement in dengue control in Sri Lanka. We analyzed the process and outcomes of these digital crowdsourcing open calls. Methods We used standard World Health Organization methods to organize the open calls, which used exclusively digital methods because of coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19. We collected and analyzed socio-demographic information and digital engagement metrics from each submission. Submissions in the form of textual data describing community-led strategies for mosquito release were coded using grounded theory. Results The open calls received 73 submissions. Most people who submitted ideas spoke English, lived in Sri Lanka, and were 18 to 34 years old. The total Facebook reach was initially limited, 16,161 impressions, prompting expansion to a global campaign, which reached 346,810 impressions over 14 days. Diverse strategies for the distribution of Wolbachia infected mosquito boxes were identified, including leveraging traditional festivals, schools, and community networks. 15 submissions, 21%, suggested the use of digital tools for monitoring and evaluation, sharing instructions, or creating networks. 13 submissions, 18%, focused on social and economic incentives to prompt community engagement and catalyze community-led distribution. Conclusions Our project demonstrates that digital crowdsourcing open calls are an effective way to solicit creative and innovative ideas in a resource-limited setting. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Unintentional monotherapy in rheumatoid arthritis patients receiving tofacitinib and drug survival rate of tofacitinib. Objective. To determine the rate of unintentional monotherapy, UM, switching to monotherapy from combination therapy of patients' own volition in rheumatoid arthritis patients receiving tofacitinib and to evaluate tofacitinib survival rate. Methods. This national, Multi-center study included patients' data from the TurkBio registry. Demographics, clinical characteristics, disease duration and activity, comorbidities, and treatments were analyzed. Results Data of 231 rheumatoid arthritis patients, 84.8% female, median age, 56 years, were included. 153 were initially prescribed combination therapy and continued to their therapies. 31 were initially prescribed combination therapy but switched to monotherapy on their own volition, UM. 21 were initially prescribed monotherapy and switched to combination therapy. 26 were initially prescribed monotherapy and continued to their therapies. The rate of comorbidities at the time of data retrieval was higher in the UM group than in the combination group, 83.3% versus 60.3%, P equals 0.031. Presence of comorbidities was a significant factor affecting switching to monotherapy, P equals 0.039, odds ratio, 3.29, 95% confidence interval, 1.06 to 10.18. The combination and UM groups did not differ regarding remission rate assessed by disease activity score 28 joint count C reactive protein, 60.5% and 70%, respectively, P equals 0.328. Drug survival rates of the UM and combination groups did not differ.
The median drug survival duration of tofacitinib was 27 plus months with 1 and 4 year drug survival rates of 89.6% and 60.2%, respectively, in the UM group. Conclusions Although 13.4% of the study population started monotherapy unintentionally, drug survival and remission rates of the UM and combination groups were not different. Comorbidity was a factor affecting transition from combination therapy to monotherapy. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Polyrefractory rheumatoid arthritis, an uncommon subset of difficult-to-treat disease with distinct inflammatory and non-inflammatory phenotypes. Objectives To investigate the prevalence of polyrefractory RA defined as failure of all biologic, B-targeted synthetic, TS, MARDS. To further investigate whether persistent inflammatory refractory RA, PIRA, and non-inflammatory refractory RA, NIRA, patients, determined by objective ultrasound, U.S., synovitis, have distinct clinical phenotypes in both ulur difficult-to-treat rheumatoid arthritis, D2TRA, and polyrefractory RA groups. Methods A cross-sectional study of 1,591 RA patients on biologic B-SMARTS that evaluated D2TRA criteria and subclassified as polyrefractory if inefficacy slash toxicity to at least one drug of all classes. PIRA was defined if U.S. synovitis in greater than or equal to one swollen joint, SJ, and NIRA if absent. Univariate tests and multivariate logistic regression were conducted to investigate factors associated with polyrefractory, PIRA, and NIRA phenotypes. Results 122-1591 were excluded due to missing data. 247-1469, 16.8%, had D2TRA and only 41,469, 2.7%, polyrefractory RA. This latter group had higher DAS 28 CRP, median 5.4 versus 5.02, P less than 0.05, CRP levels, median 13 versus 5 mg L, P less than 0.01 and smoking ever rates, 20% versus 4%, P less than 0.01 compared to other D2T patients. Smoking was associated with polyrefractory RA, or equals 5.067, 95% C, 1.774 to 14.472, P equals 0.002. Of 107 D2T RA patients with recent U.S., 61, 57%, were PIRA and 46, 43%, NIRA. NIRA patients had elevated BMI, median 30 versus 26, P less than 0.001, and higher fibromyalgia prevalence, 15% versus 3%, P less than 0.05, lower SJ count, median, 2 versus 5, P less than 0.001, and lower CRP levels, 5 versus 10, P less than 0.01. Conclusion Only 2.7% of D2TRA failed all classes of B-SMARTS. Among D2TRA, under 60% had objective signs of inflammation, representing a target for innovative strategies. Next article from Circulation 
Bag valve mask ventilation and survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, a multi-center study. Background Few studies have measured ventilation during early cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, before advanced airway placement. Resuscitation guidelines recommend pauses after every 30 chest compressions to deliver ventilations. The effectiveness of bag valve mask ventilation delivered during the pause in chest compressions is unknown. We sought to determine, 1. The incidence of lung inflation with bag valve mask ventilation during 30-2 CPR, and 2. The association of ventilation with outcomes after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Methods We studied patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from six sites of the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium CCC study, trial of continuous compressions versus standard CPR in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. We analyzed patients assigned to the 30-2 CPR arm with greater than or equal to 2 minutes of thoracic bioimpedance signal recorded with a cardiac defibrillator-slash-monitor. Detectable ventilation waveforms were defined as having a bioimpedance amplitude greater than or equal to 0. 5 ohms, corresponding to greater than or equal to 250 milliliter VT, and a duration greater than or equal to 1s. We defined a chest compression pause as a 3 to 15s break in chest compressions. We compared the incidence of ventilation and outcomes in two groups, patients with ventilation waveforms in less than 50% of pauses, group 1, versus those with waveforms in greater than or equal to 50% of pauses, group 2. Results Among 1976 patients, the mean age was 65 years, 66% were male. From the start of chest compressions until advanced airway placement, mean plus or minus duration of 30 to 2 CPR was 9.8 plus or minus 4.9 minutes. During this period, we identified 26,861 pauses in chest compressions, 60% of patients had ventilation waveforms in less than 50% of pauses, group 1 and equals 1177, and 40% had waveforms in greater than or equal to 50% of pauses, group 2, and equals 799. Group 1 had a median of 12 pauses and 2 ventilations per patient versus group 2, which had 12 pauses and 12 ventilations per patient. Group 2 had higher rates of pre-hospital return of spontaneous circulation, 40.7% versus 25.2%, P less than 0.0001, survival to hospital discharge, 13.5% versus 4.1%, P less than 0.0001, and survival with favorable neurological outcome, 10.6% versus 2.4%, P less than 0.0001. These associations persisted after adjustment for confounders. Conclusions in this study, lung inflation occurred infrequently with bag valve mask ventilation during 30-2 CPR. Lung inflation in greater than or equal to 50% of pauses was associated with improved return of spontaneous circulation, survival, and survival with favorable neurological outcome. Next article from American College of Cardiology Long-Term Safety of Inclyceron for Treatment of Hypercholesterolemia Study Questions What is the evidence on the long-term safety profile of Inclyceron for treatment of hypercholesterolemia? Methods The investigators examined the safety of Inclyceron in a post-hoc analysis which was comprised of patients treated with 300 mg Inclyceron sodium or placebo in the completed, 
Orion 1, Orion 3, Orion 5, Orion 9, Orion 10, and Orion 11 and ongoing, Orion 8, trials. A total of 5,544 participants were included in the present analysis, 3,576 receiving Inclyceron and 1,968 receiving placebo. Exposure-adjusted incidence rates and Kaplan-Meier estimates of cumulative incidence of reported treatment emergent adverse events, abnormal laboratory measurements, and incidence of antidrug antibodies were analyzed. Results The study population examined included 3,576 patients treated with Inclyceron for up to 6 years and 1,968 patients treated with placebo for up to 1.5 years. The majority of participants had a diagnosis of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and were taking a statin. Baseline characteristics were balanced between groups. Kaplan-Meier analyzes showed that treatment emergent adverse events that were serious or led to discontinuation, hepatic, muscle and kidney events, incident diabetes, and elevations of creatine kinase or creatinine accrued at a comparable rate between groups for up to 1.5 years, with similar trends continuing for Inclyceron beyond this period. Fewer major cardiovascular events reported as treatment emergent adverse events occurred with Inclyceron during this period. Treatment-induced antidrug antibodies were uncommon with Inclyceron, 4.6%, with few of these persistent, 1.4%, and not associated with greater incidence of treatment-emergent adverse events leading to study drug discontinuation or serious treatment-emergent adverse events. Conclusions The authors concluded that long-term treatment with Inclyceron was well-tolerated in a diverse population, without new safety signals, supporting the safety of Inclyceron in patients with dyslipidemia. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Safety and Tolerability of Inclyceron for Treatment of Hypercholesterolemia in 7 Clinical Trials Background Inclyceron is a small interfering RNA agent to lower low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. Objectives The purpose of this study was to provide reliable evidence to date on the long-term safety profile of Inclyceron. Methods This post-hoc analysis comprised patients treated with 300 mg Inclyceron sodium or placebo in the completed Orion 1, minus 3, minus 5, minus 9, minus 10, and minus 11 and ongoing. Orion 8 trials. Exposure-adjusted incidence rates and Kaplan-Meier estimates of cumulative incidence of reported treatment emergent adverse events, TEE, abnormal laboratory measurements, and incidence of antidrug antibodies were analyzed. Results. This analysis included 3,576 patients treated with Inclyceron for up to 6 years and 1,968 patients treated with placebo for up to 1.5 years, with 9,982.1 and 2,647.7 patient years of exposure, respectively. Baseline characteristics were balanced between groups. Kaplan-Meier analyzes showed that Ts that were serious or led to discontinuation, hepatic, muscle and kidney events, incident diabetes, and elevations of creatine kinase or creatinine accrued at a comparable rate between groups for up to 1.5 years, with similar trends continuing for Inclyceron beyond this period. Numerically fewer major cardiovascular events reported as Ts occurred with Inclyceron during this period. 
Treatment-induced antidrug antibodies were uncommon within Cliceron, 4.6%, with few of these persistent, 1.4%, and not associated with greater incidence of Ts leading to study drug discontinuation or serious Ts. Conclusions Long-term treatment with Cliceron was well tolerated in a diverse population, without new safety signals, supporting the safety of Cliceron in patients with dyslipidemia. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Effective GH replacement with somapacitin in children with GHD, real for two-year results and after switch from daily GH. Context. Somapacitin is a long-acting GH derivative for treatment of GH deficiency, GHD. Objective. Evaluate the efficacy and tolerability of somapacitin in children with GHD after two years of treatment and after the switch from daily GH. Design. A randomized, multinational, open-labeled, controlled parallel group phase 3 trial, comprising a 52-week main phase and three-year safety extension, NCTO 3811535. Setting. 85 sites across 20 countries. Patients. A total of 200 treatment-naive prepubertal patients were randomized and exposed. 194 completed the two-year period. Interventions. Patients were randomized 2 to 1 to somapacitin, 0.16 mg kg WK or daily GH, 0.034 mg kg D, during the first year, after which all patients received somapacitin 0.16 mg kg WK. Main Outcome Measures Height Velocity, HV, CM slash Year, at Week 104 Additional assessments included HV SD score, SDS, height SDS, IGFI SDS, and observer-reported outcomes Results HV was sustained in both groups between 52 and 104 weeks At Week 104, Mean, SD, for HV between Weeks 52 and 104 was 8.4 1.5, CM slash year after continuous somapacitin treatment and 8.7, 1.8, CM slash year after one year of somapacitin treatment following switch from daily GH. Secondary height-related endpoints also supported sustained growth. Mean IGFI SDS during year 2 was similar between groups and within normal range, minus 2 to plus 2. Somapacitin was well tolerated, with no safety or tolerability issues identified. GH patient preference questionnaire results show that most patients and their caregivers, 90%, who switched treatment at year 2 preferred once-weekly somapacitin over daily GH treatment. Conclusions Somapacitin in children with GHD showed sustained efficacy and tolerability for two years, and after switching from daily GH. Patients-slash-caregivers switching from daily GH expressed a preference for somapacitin. Next article from Neurology. Association between diseases and symptoms diagnosed in primary care and the subsequent specific risk of multiple sclerosis. Objective. Previous studies have reported a possible prodrome in multiple sclerosis, MS, defined by nonspecific symptoms including mood disorder or genitourinary symptoms and increased healthcare use detected several years before diagnosis. 
This study aimed to evaluate agnostically the associations between diseases and symptoms diagnosed in primary care and the risk of multiple sclerosis, MS, relative to controls and two other autoimmune inflammatory diseases with similar population characteristics, namely lupus and Crohn's disease. Methods A case control study was conducted using electronic health records from the Health Improvement Network database in the UK and France. We agnostically assessed the associations between 113 diseases and symptoms in the five years before and after diagnosis in patients with subsequent diagnosis of MS individuals with a diagnosis of MS were compared to individuals without MS, and individuals with two other autoimmune diseases, Crohn's disease and lupus. Results The study population consisted of patients with MS, and equals 20,174 patients without MS, and equals 54,790, patients with Crohn's disease, and equals 30,477, or patients with lupus, and equals 7,337. 12 ICD-10 codes were significantly positively associated with the risk of MS compared to controls without MS after considering ICD-10 codes suggestive of neurological symptoms as the first diagnosis of MS. 5 ICD-10 codes remained significantly associated with MS, depression, UK or 1.22, 95% C1.11 to 1.34, sexual dysfunction, 1.47, 1.11 to 1.95, constipation, 1.5, 1.27 to 1.78, cystitis, 1.21, 1.05 to 1.39, and urinary tract infections of unspecified site, 1.38, 1.18 to 1.61. However, None of these conditions was selectively associated with MS in comparisons with both lupus and Crohn's disease. All five ICD-10 codes identified were still associated with MS during the five years after diagnosis. Conclusion We identified five health conditions associated with subsequent MS diagnosis, which may be considered not only prodromal but also early-stage symptoms. However, these health conditions overlap with prodrome of two other autoimmune diseases, Hence they lack specificity to MIS. Next article from Chest. Multiplex polymerase chain reaction assay to detect nasopharyngeal viruses in immunocompromised patients with acute respiratory failure. Background. In immunocompromised patients with acute respiratory failure, ARF, the clinical significance of respiratory virus detection in the nasopharynx remains uncertain. Research question. Is viral detection in nasopharyngeal swabs associated with causes and outcomes of ARF in immunocompromised patients? Study design and methods. This pre-planned post-hoc analysis of a randomized controlled trial enrolled immunocompromised patients admitted to 32 ICUs for ARF between May 2016 and December 2017. Nasopharyngeal swabs sampled at inclusion were assessed for 23 respiratory pathogens using multiplex polymerase chain reaction, PCR, assay. Causes of ARF were established by managing physicians and were reviewed by three expert investigators masked to the multiplex PCR assay results. Associations between virus detection and nasopharyngeal swabs, causes of ARF, and composite outcome of day 28 mortality, invasive mechanical ventilation, IMB, or both were assessed. Results. Among the 510 sampled patients, the multiplex PCR assay results were positive in 103 patients, 
20.2%, and a virus was detected in 102 samples, rhinoviruses or enteroviruses in 35.5%, coronaviruses in 10.9%, and flu-like viruses, influenza virus, parainfluenza virus, respiratory syncytial virus, human metanumovirus, in 52.7%. The cause of the ARF varied significantly according to the results of the multiplex PCRSA, especially the proportion of viral pneumonia, 50.0% with flu-like viruses, 14.0% with other viruses, and 3.6% when no virus was detected, p less than 0.001. No difference was found in the composite outcome of day 28 mortality, IMB, or both according to positive assay findings, 54.9% versus 54.7%, p equals 0.965. In a pre-established subgroup analysis, Flu-like virus detection was associated with a higher rate of day 28 mortality, IMV, or both among recipients of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation compared with those without detected virus. Interpretation In immunocompromised patients with ARF, the results of nasopharyngeal multiplex PCRSAs are not associated with IMV or mortality. A final diagnosis of viral pneumonia is retained in one-third of patients with positive assay results and in one-half of the patients with a flu-like virus. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Inflammatory Molecular Endotypes in Bronchiectasis, a European Multicenter Cohort Study. Rationale, although inflammation and infection are key disease drivers in bronchiectasis, few studies have integrated host inflammatory and microbiome data to guide precision medicine. Objectives, to identify clusters among patients with bronchiectasis on the basis of inflammatory markers and to assess the association between inflammatory endotypes, microbiome characteristics, and exacerbation risk. Methods, patients with stable bronchiectasis were enrolled at three European centers, and cluster analysis was used to stratify the patients according to the levels of 33 sputum and serum inflammatory markers. Clusters were compared in terms of microbiome composition, 16S ribosomal RNA sequencing, and exacerbation risk over a 12-month follow-up. Measurements and main results, a total of 199 patients were enrolled, 109, 54.8%, female, median age, 69 year. Four clusters of patients were defined according to their inflammatory profiles, cluster 1, milder neutrophilic inflammation, cluster 2, mixed neutrophilic and type 2, cluster 3, most severe neutrophilic, and cluster 4, mixed epithelial and type 2. Lower microbiome diversity was associated with more severe inflammatory clusters, p less than 0.001, and beta diversity analysis demonstrated distinct microbiome profiles associated with each inflammatory cluster, p equals 0.001. Proteobacteria and pseudomonas at phylum and genus levels, respectively, were more enriched in clusters 2 and 3 than in clusters 1 and 4. Furthermore, patients in cluster 2, rate ratio, RR, 1.49, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.16 to 1.92, and cluster 3, RR, 1.61, 95% C, 1.12 to 2.32, were at higher risk of exacerbation over a 12-month follow-up compared with cluster 1, even after adjustment for prior exacerbation history. 
Conclusions, bronchiectasis inflammatory endotypes are associated with distinct microbiome profiles and future exacerbation risk. Next article is from Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. Non-pure intestinal phenotype is an indicator of progression in sporadic non-ampullary duodenal adenomas, a multicenter retrospective cohort study. Introduction We aim to evaluate the natural course of sporadic non-ampullary duodenal adenomas, SNDAs, and determine the risk factors of progression. Methods We retrospectively analyzed the follow-up outcomes of patients with biopsy-diagnosed SNDA between April 2010 and March 2016 at 13 institutions. All initial biopsy specimens were centrally evaluated. Only those diagnosed with adenomas were included. Mucinous phenotypes were classified into pure intestinal and non-pure intestinal phenotypes. Cumulative incidence rates of carcinoma and tumor enlargement were evaluated. Tumor enlargement was defined as a greater than or equal to 25% or 5 mm increase in tumor size. Results Overall, 121 lesions were analyzed. Within a median observation period of 32.7 months, 5 lesions were diagnosed as carcinomas, the cumulative 5-year incidence of carcinoma was 9.5%. Male sex, P equals 0.046, initial lesion size greater than or equal to 10 m. P equals 0.044, and non-pure intestinal phenotype, P equals 0.019, were significantly associated with progression to carcinoma. Tumor enlargement was observed in 22 lesions, with a cumulative 5-year incidence of 33.9%. Initial lesion size greater than or equal to 10 m, P less than 0.001, erythematous lesion, P equals 0.002, high-grade adenoma, P equals 0.002, P67 negative, P equals 0.007, and non-pure intestinal phenotype, P equals 0.001, were risk factors for tumor enlargement. In a multivariate analysis, an initial lesion size greater than or equal to 10 m, P equals 0.010, and non-pure intestinal phenotype, P equals 0.046, were independent and significant risk factors for tumor enlargement. Conclusions Lesion size greater than or equal to 10 m and non-pure intestinal phenotype on initial biopsy are risk factors for cancer progression and tumor enlargement in SNDA cases. Thus, management effectiveness may be improved by focusing on lesion size and the mucinous phenotype. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Nurse practitioner care compared with primary care or nephrologist care in early CKV. Visual abstract. Background. Early interventions in CKV have been shown to improve health outcomes, however gaps in access to nephrology care remain common. Nurse practitioners can improve access to care. However, the quality and outcomes of nurse practitioner care for CKD are uncertain. Methods In this propensity score matched cohort study, patients with CKD meeting criteria for nurse practitioner care were matched one-to-one on their propensity scores for, 1, nurse practitioner care versus primary care alone and, 2, nurse practitioner versus nephrologist care. 
Processes of care were measured within one year after cohort entry, and clinical outcomes were measured over five years of follow-up and compared between propensity score matched groups. Results A total of 961, 99%, patients from the nurse practitioner clinic were matched on their propensity score to 961, 1%, patients receiving primary care only while 969, 100%, Patients from the nurse practitioner clinic were matched to 969, 7% patients receiving nephrologist care. After matching to patients receiving primary care alone, those receiving nurse practitioner care had greater use of angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors-slash-angiotensin receptor blocker, 82% versus 79%, absolute differences, ADs 3.4%, 95% confidence interval, 0.0% to 6.9%, and statins, 75% versus 66%, AD 9.7%, 5.8% to 13.6%, fewer prescriptions of nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, 10% versus 17%, AD minus 7.2%, minus 10.4% to minus 4.2%, greater ecferin and albuminuria monitoring, and lower rates of all-cause hospitalization, 34.1 versus 43.3%, Rate difference minus 9.2, minus 14.7 to minus 3.8, per 100 person years, and all-cause mortality, 3.3 versus 6.0, rate difference minus 2.7, minus 3.6 to minus 1.7, per 100 person years. When matched to patients receiving nephrologist care, those receiving nurse practitioner care were also more likely to be prescribed angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors slash angiotensin receptor blockers and statins, with no difference in the risks of experiencing adverse clinical outcomes. Conclusions Nurse practitioner care for patients with CKD was associated with better guideline concordant care than primary care alone or nephrologist care, with clinical outcomes that were better than or equivalent to primary care alone and similar to those with care by nephrologists. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Randomized trial on the effect of an oral spleen tyrosine kinase inhibitor in the treatment of eganephropathy. Introduction We reported increased spleen tyrosine kinase, SYK, expression in kidney biopsies of patients with eganephropathy, EGAN, and that inhibition of SIC reduces inflammatory cytokines production from EGAS-stimulated mesangial cells. Methods This study was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled phase 2 trial of fostamatinib, an oral SIC inhibitor, in 76 patients with EGAN. Patients were randomized to receive placebo, fostamatinib at 100 mg or 150 mg twice daily for 24 weeks on top of maximum tolerated dose of renin-angiotensin system inhibitors. The primary endpoint was reduction of proteinuria. Secondary endpoints included change from baseline in estimated glomerular filtration rate, ECFR, and kidney histology. Results Although we could not detect significant reduction in proteinuria with fostamatinib overall, in a predetermined subgroup analysis, there was a trend for dose-dependent reduction in median proteinuria, from baseline to 24 weeks by 14%, 27%, and 36% in the placebo, fostamatinib 100 mg, and 150 mg groups, respectively, in patients with baseline urinary protein to creatinine ratios, UPCR, 
more than 1,000 mg g. Kidney function, EGFR, remained stable in all groups. Fostamatinib was well tolerated. Side effects included diarrhea, hypertension, and increased liver enzymes. 39 patients underwent repeat biopsy showing reductions in six staining associated with therapy at low dose, minus 1.5 versus 1.76 plus cells slash glomerulus in the placebo group, P less than 0.05. Conclusions There was a trend toward reduction in proteinuria with fostamatinib in a predefined analysis of high-risk patients with IG and despite maximal care, as defined by baseline UPCR greater than 1000 mg slash G. Further study may be warranted. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.